Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for, for music, music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about the skills you need to invest in to have great sight readers in your studio. Welcome back, lovely teachers. Great to be back with you again. This week's episode is inspired by an article written by Heidi Neal called Five Sight Reading Games for Beginner Pianists. There's great details on all of these different games as well as more ideas for resources you could use in Heidi's post. Her games and her choices actually uncovered for me a set of five different skills I believe we need to develop in our students for them to be great sight readers. In other words, the question I want to answer today is, if we want our students to be great sight readers in the future, aside from practicing reading, what do we need to do now to reap those rewards later? If we were choosing investment funds <laughs> for our students, what would they be? What would we bet our money on now that we're sure will go up in the future? Unlike real investing, these strategies are more sure things. <laughs> so it's going to be a great investment of your time with your students to develop these skills. And I think some of them, maybe at least one today, will be something you feel you're not investing in enough. Now, some of them will be obvious to you. One of them will definitely be obvious to most people. But there are definitely five different areas. So as you go through, as you listen to this episode and listen to my five chosen areas, I want you to ask yourself, do I invest in this? Do I put enough money into this investment fund that my student can use this later? Am I saving up enough now that they'll be able to buy their first home or retire on their sight reading skills? Does that analogy work? No, I don't think it does, but bear with me. <laughs> Before we get to my list of five, I'd like to welcome all our new listeners. So if this is your first time, let me know how you get on with this episode. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already in your favorite podcast app or wherever you're listening. If this is not your first time and you've listened to a previous episode and loved it and gotten something from it, learned something new, had something to fight with another teacher about, 
hopefully not that last one, then I would really appreciate you leaving a review for this podcast. So you can leave a review anywhere you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening right now, please hit the review button. I know it's something that's hard to remember to do. We all know that there's so many things we mean to review and then we don't get around to it. But it really does make a difference. And if you think that teaching should be moving this direction, including improvisation and games and fun stuff and more thoughtful teaching strategies like we teach here on the podcast, then this is you doing your part for spreading that. This is how you get more teachers involved. Because if our podcast gets reviewed more, then those podcast apps will start to show it as an option for other listeners who might like it. If you want to go one step further, what I would really love is if you would tell a teacher friend about the show. Pick one favorite episode and one favorite teacher friend and bring them together. Do some matchmaking. Now, without further ado, let's get into these five skills. I've done them in order of kind of a sequence of learning more than importance, although they sort of fall in an order of importance in the same way. The first skill that I think is essential for great sight reading later on for great reading skills is scanning and tracking. This is one that I think for many of us we don't invest enough in or we don't even see. It's kind of an invisible skill that many of us have. But if you sit down, if you consider yourself a decent sight reader, sit down and sight read a piece of music. And try, this is difficult, but as you're doing it, try and pay attention to where your eyes actually are. Or take a video that manages sort of looking three quarters over your shoulder (laughs) or a quarter over your shoulder, depending on how you want to see that, so that you can see where your eyes are on the music as you play. Now, you may have noticed this before, but you may not have. Your eyes will not be on the bit that you're playing. Often for people at our kind of level, your eyes will be several bars or several measures ahead of where you're actually playing. That's how we keep it all moving. That's how we stay in time and in rhythm. It's not that we can read super fast. We can read fast, but it's more that we can play something that we have read before and be digesting the next part so that we can move efficiently through the music without having those halts at bar lines. Compare this to many of your students who read one box at a time, right? One bar, one measure. You, you surely have seen students like this who they have a chunk and then they stop and they read the next chunk. And those bar lines provide that e- easy way to divide up the music. But we all know we don't want students to stop there, do we? No, no thank you. That's not the most pleasant sound. So scanning and tracking are a big part of the skills of reading, and yet we don't teach them explicitly, possibly because we don't notice it, and possibly because it's actually quite hard to teach these things, so I do want to acknowledge that. It's not like some other skills that we'll get to in a second where you can easily see how a game or a flashcard drill would help them with this. With scanning and tracking, it's harder to see how we would gamify that. However, we can work on developing those skills. As a little test, if you have a student who you feel might be lacking in this skill, or if you have a beginning student that you just want to make sure they're okay in this area of scanning and tracking the music across, 
I want you to have them play something and then have them play it again, but you point along to the notes, not specifically to the notes, right? Rather, you move your pencil in time with the music fluidly across, pointing down from above. So you're holding the pencil, pointing down at the staff on the page, and you're moving it in time with the music or where the music should be. Now, does this improve their playing or not? This isn't a foolproof method, but it will give you some idea. If their issue, if they're having issues with reading and their issue is actually with tracking the score, this will reveal that because they will get so much better once you're pointing, right? So it might be that they're looking up and down from their hands too much. Nothing wrong with doing that a bit. We all know that. But too much, too often. And that's causing them to lose their place. Or you might notice that their eyes are simply darting all over the place. Now that you've revealed the issue, you might watch them reading in general without you pointing and their eyes are just moving everywhere. And you realize they're not able to scan directly across the music. Now, if you identify this issue, the best way to work on it is more of that pointing because the more you train them to follow your pencil, the more their eyes will get practice moving the right direction. So you can alternate doing with and without. And if you do this for quite a while, I've noticed most students just clear it up on their own. They find a way to start tracking the music. If they really don't after a long time, let's say a year of you doing this and they're still no better at tracking left to right, I would approach the parents and see about an eye test just in case. Many teachers, myself included, have been nervous about bringing this up with parents. It feels like you're saying there's something wrong with your child or something. But I always, and you can use me as an example if you like, if this helps you. I always bring it to them as, hey, I'm not sure if this is an issue, but I wanted to bring it up because personally... I went without glasses for maybe three to five years before realizing I needed them. And I know that now, but at the time I had no idea as an adult. (laughs) So if I had no idea as an adult, it's definitely hard for you to realize when your kid needs glasses. It's really hard for them to know that they do. And I mean, my older brother was the same way as a kid. My mom didn't realize for ages. It's really common because that's the way they see the world. So they don't know they're supposed to see it more clearly. The next stage of the scanning and tracking skill is that they're looking ahead. So this is where a little game where you cover the previous bar can be really helpful. So you get a piece of paper, preferably kind of a piece of card or card stock, as Americans would say. So a heavier weight paper, and you have it in a strip that will cover a bar at a time. And you can move it across. So I like a long strip that's about the height of the staff. And you move that along as your student's playing and you move it to cover the bar that they're currently playing so that they have to look at the next one. At first, they'll be like, what? Whoa, I can't do this at all. And then for many students, quite quickly, they'll go, oh, huh, I don't need to look. And doing this a few times will be enough for them to realize that, hey, I can just move my eyes forward. I also like to talk with students who get stuck at the end of a line of music about consciously move your eyes quick, more quickly to the next line. It needs to be conscious sometimes before it becomes just intuitive or instinctive. 
That was skill number one. Now I spent a while on scanning and tracking because I feel it's something I haven't talked about a ton on the podcast and that many teachers haven't thought about in depth. Skill number two is more frequently talked about and certainly very frequently talked about by me, and that is intervals. If you're not currently teaching your students to identify intervals, seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, etc. in their music, please start doing it. That skill is one of the most foundational to great sight reading. And if you start it earlier, you're going to be much less likely to have a student who wants to stop and figure out every single note name, which is just too slow as a method. Unlike scanning and tracking, there are many, many ways to work on intervallic reading. You can do it by having them colour in the music on the score, just having them point and say the intervals as they go through, and by playing lots of interval games like Nimble Neighbours from Vibrant Music Teaching, or Interval, Sprinterval, Schminterval, or many, many, many others. We have loads of interval games because I love teaching using intervals. Skill number three is finding shapes. So this is about your student finding the contours of the music. A really great way to have them practice this is to join the dots. So get a piece of tracing paper or if you want baking paper, uh, grease proof paper, anything that's a little bit see-through will work great. Even some really cheap printer paper is kind of see-through, so that'll work too. And put it over their score and then join the dots, meaning join the note heads to each other as if it was a join the dots picture. It's a really fun exercise to do, and it will help your students see the shape in the music. If you do this a lot with new pieces or sight reading exercises, students will start to see these shapes in general. A great next step then is to then take that shape and try and vocalize it. Rather than sing it, I prefer just vocalize it. Just, oh, you know, kind of sliding up and down like siren style and following the shape so that they start to get a sense of does it go up and then down and what does that feel like in my voice and sound like roughly in sound, not in any particular key, not with specific notes, but just the rough contour of the melody or the pattern. My next skill is the one that may have been obvious to everyone from the start, and that is note names. Note names are often the first thing people jump to, especially new teachers, especially people who come from a certain tradition or use certain method books, or just people outside of music. They know about note names, they know you're supposed to drill them, they maybe even know the mnemonics, and so they jump right there. Note names are important for sight reading, but they're much less important than those first three I mentioned. And I believe they should come later. Not because I don't want my students to see a note and instantly name it. That's great. I want that. But I want it after the intervals, after the shapes, after the scanning and tracking. The reason I want to actually put that off a little bit, I do teach them landmark notes in the beginning, but I want to put off really practicing note names until they've gotten comfortable with seconds and thirds or steps and skips. The reason that's so important to me is if I teach note names too soon, students end up defaulting to that. They want to use that. It seems like the thing they should be doing. And it also, to some students, seems easier than the patterns. Now, it's not easier, but it seems more logical to them or not even logical, but more familiar 
because they're so used to working on letters and stuff in school. And so they gravitate towards that. As I've seen with many, many students, especially adult students who come to me after teaching themselves a bit, this makes you a terrible reader. It really does. It slows them down so much. Eventually, they get to a stage where they've done enough reading that they instinctively look at the intervals and play them without identifying them. You know, maybe they can't tell you it's a fifth, but they do just jump for it. And it's not because they've seen that it's a G to a D. It is because they've seen that it's a fifth. But I prefer to skip all that mess of them working out the individual notes and going super slowly and jump right to using intervals, which is why delaying note names works better for me. Once we do get to working on note names, I like to do lots of note naming games, of course, and do the 60 second challenge, which has three different levels in my studio, bronze, silver and gold. So there's um, different ranges on the staff so that they get really comfortable with those and they achieve that challenge level in my studio. And the final skill is anti-perfectionism. This is something that isn't really part of my sequence there. I mean, if you identify that a student has a perfectionist tendency, you're going to want to address that pretty early on, to be honest. But I put it last because it kind of applies the whole way through. If students are really perfectionist, they want to get it perfectly right and they want to get it the first time perfectly right, it does stand in the way of them sight reading well. You have to be able to just do it. You have to be able to just go for it and have a guess and have a go. And this is where what we talked about in the last episode with the stubborn duet secret and ensemble skills for sight reading, this is where that comes into play as well. That helps to get rid of some of the perfectionist tendencies in students who lean that way. What also will help is lots of improv. Working on improvisation is great in its own right. It can teach them other skills as well, but it can also help with perfectionism because you just try something and it'll basically work no matter what and maybe you'll like some things more than others, but it's not about having a right answer. So there you have it. Those are my five skills. We've got scanning and tracking the music, intervals, finding shapes or contours, note names, and (laughs) anti-perfectionism. Your one thing this week is to think about which of these skills you are not investing in in your studio and make a plan to include one game, one activity this week that puts some beans into that pot that invests in that fund. Let me know what skills you think I should have included today or which one was a surprise for you. I'd love to hear from you on Instagram at Colourful Keys or in the Facebook group Vibrant Music Studio Teachers. I'll see you there. One of the awesome benefits for Vibrant Music Teaching members is that they get an exclusive member magazine every month. This magazine brings together our blog articles in a way that is digestible and super actionable. If you want to become a member and get the magazine as well as all the other benefits, you can go to vmt.ninja to sign up. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.